Before I read our text from Paul's letter to the Romans this evening, I mentioned to you that sometimes we hear the voice of cynicism in the land that complains that there isn't any justice in the world. But this afternoon in Indianapolis, Indiana, (laughs) justice prevailed. Yes, thank you. We're going to continue now with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in chapter 4, and last week we focused our attention on the apparent conflict between Paul's appeal to Abraham as exhibit A for those who are justified by faith, and James' appeal also to Abraham for his case that justification is not by faith alone, but by works as well. And we examined and I hope resolved that apparent conflict to your satisfaction. But in passing, I mentioned a couple of verses that I'd like to repeat again this evening and really pick up the text tonight at verse 5 and read through verse 12. So it'll be Romans 4, verses 5 through 12 and I'd ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness, apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, our hearts leap with joy at the sound of the good news that promises us a righteousness that is the ground of our justification, which righteousness is not our own. It is a righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us, that counts for us, that is reckoned to us by Thy mercy. And as we continue to examine this glorious gospel, 
We pray that the Spirit of truth would give us insight to these things even tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, as I said, we focused our attention on Paul's appeal to Abraham as the supreme example in the Scripture of one who was justified by faith, and as time was running out, I rushed uh, quickly over the last couple of verses where Paul, for a moment, uh, interspersed another argument from the Old Testament, first appealing to Abraham, to whom he comes back in a few moments. But before he returns to Abraham as his primary witness, he calls upon David as another example par excellence of justification by faith in the Old Testament. Where he says in verse 5, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, comma, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Now, at the risk of being repetitive, which is really not a perilous risk because that's how we learn through repetition, I want to spend some time this evening talking about the use of this term blessed in sacred Scripture. It disturbs me, not a little bit, that modern commentators seeking to be relevant to the culture where we are in this day and age prefer to translate the word that is translated here, blessed, by the word happy. But if any word would cheapen what the concept is that is in front of us here, I can think of no word that would cheapen it more than the word happy, because the term happy and happiness are terms that have been used to such a superficial degree that they have lost the force of their import. Uh, We say that happiness is a warm puppy, and the kind of happiness that is in view in such adages is miles away from the happiness that is contained in the biblical word blessed. But again, to pursue it further, I, in other occasions and in other contexts, have pointed out to, at least to the members of St. Andrews, that in the Old Testament, when prophets were anointed by the Spirit of God to proclaim the Word of God and to be agents of revelation where they became mouthpieces or spokesmen for God Himself so that they could preface their announcements with the words, thus saith the Lord, the favorite device that was used by those prophets to communicate the message of God was the oracle. And if you recall, I told you that in the Old Testament, oracles, which were uttered by prophets, even in the secular world, such as the oracle of Delphi, that those oracles were of two types, the oracle of woe and the oracle of weal. 
the oracle that pronounced God's good news upon His people, as well as that oracle by which the announcement of His wrath was communicated. We've been over this, but I want us to get this here for the importance of the context of what Paul is saying now about justification. Again, to understand this, I've called attention to the Hebrew benediction in the Old Testament, which was such an integral part of the religious life of the people of Israel. You know that benediction that goes like this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. Those of you who have gone over this with me before, know that the great Hebrew benediction is expressed in terms of a poetic form called parallelism, where you have three stanzas, and each one in this case is saying the same thing, only with different words. And in those three lines are two parts. May the Lord bless and keep. Make His face to shine, be gracious unto you lift up the light of His countenance, and give you shalom, or peace. Now, it's with the first segment of those three lines that we're most concerned. To understand what the Jew meant by blessed, we see the parallel here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. See, that's called synonymous parallelism. That second verse, may the Lord make His face to shine upon you, is the same idea as contained in the statement, may the Lord bless you. To be blessed of God is to have God make His face shine upon you. And that idea is reinforced even more strongly in the third line, may the Lord lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. So how the the Jew understood blessedness was always in terms of the proximity that one had to the presence of God. We know that in the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve rejoiced when God came in the cool of the day, rushed to be in His presence enjoyed the light of His countenance. But once sin marred that relationship, we were expelled from the presence of God, and the mandate came from God, my face shall not be seen. No man shall see my face and live. In fact, the imagery in the Bible of hell itself is the place of outer darkness where not the slightest glimmer of light penetrates from the countenance of God. To be cursed of God is to have God turn His back upon you, to remove His grace from you, and take away all hope of peace. So, again, the curse of God is communicated through the oracle of woe. Remember Jesus and the Pharisees, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
You go over land and sea to make one convert, but once you make him, you make him twice the child of hell than you are. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whited sepulchers, clean, unblemished on the outside, but inside filled with dead men's bones. And on and on, Jesus pronounces the oracle of doom with the expression of the woe and the curse upon those who are removed from the presence of God. But in bold contrast to that is the oracle of weal that is pronounced by God with the oracular expression, blessed. David in the psalm, the very first psalm, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, stands in the way of the sinner, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. And what will be his lot? He'll be like the tree that's planted by rivers of living water, bringing forth his fruit in his season. See the pronouncement of the blessing. Blessed is that man. The ungodly are not like that. They're like the chaff, David said, which the wind drives away. Fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus himself as the prophet par excellence uses the same device of the oracle to pronounce the joy that God gives to his people. When on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. They'll be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're going to be called the children of God. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so, you know, we tend to cheapen this. We'll say, bless you, my friend, or God bless you. And yet the highest experience and joy of the human soul is to experience that blessedness that only God can give. And when Paul is talking here about the gospel, when Paul is talking here about justification by faith alone, he calls attention to this great beatitude, to this supreme state of blessedness by calling attention to David, where we read this, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. If we translated this or translated literated it, transformed it into the oracular form, we could say that what David is saying is, how blessed is the one who receives the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. What do you give a man who has everything? Well, you give him what he doesn't have righteousness. 
and the greatest gift that you could ever receive from the hand of God is the blessed gift of the righteousness of Christ. Do you get that? I mean, we, how can we get it? How can we put our arms around this? How can we unpack that? That in God's eyes, God counts us as righteous as Jesus. This is what Rome protests against vociferously, saying the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone, based on this concept of imputation, is a doctrine that involves a legal fiction and makes God a liar because it has God counting people who are righteous who are not righteous. A legal fiction. No, it is legal. It is a legal declaration, but there is absolutely nothing fictional about God's act of imputation. The righteousness of Jesus, beloved, is real righteousness. And the imputation of that righteousness to your account in Christ is a real imputation. If it were only a fiction, we would despair. But the reality of that imputation gives to us the reality of blessedness that all who receive such imputed righteousness enjoy. Bless the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes directly from David. Listen to this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Let me just take those two lines. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds. It's not blessed are those who have obeyed the law, whose meritorious deeds, whose lawful deeds have justified him, but blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. You know, one of the scariest titles for the Antichrist in the New Testament is the title, Man of Lawlessness, because that's what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. We are a nation of scofflaws. We are a nation who have become immunized against obedience even to the civil law. There are so many of those laws that we tend to discount their significance. And it's one thing to scoff at the laws that are made by men, to scoff at the law of God is the deepest kind of evil. That's why the Antichrist himself is described as the man of lawlessness. Don't you remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount? I've told you of this, the scariest sermon that Jesus ever preaches. He concludes that wonderful sermon by telling this, the statement that many will come to him on the last day, saying to him, Lord, Lord, 
Didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And Jesus warns us in that sermon that He will turn to these folks who call Him Lord, Lord, and say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. It's a scary idea that people will claim to know Jesus, to know Him intimately, claim to be involved in the ministry, and yet He'll say, please leave. I don't know your name. Why will He say that? Because those people will be characterized by lives of lawlessness. Those are unrepentant sinners who profess to be Christians, but who have never trusted in Christ and His righteousness alone. But by nature, beloved, that's what we are. That's who we are, lawless people before God. And to be a lawless person before God is to earn, to merit, and deserve the wrath of God. But instead of the wrath of God, we get the blessing of God. And that's why David cries out, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That's at the heart of our justification, that in justification, God forgives our sins. He removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. When our daughter was six years old, or five years old, I forget which, Sherry, my daughter was with us when I was serving on the, on the staff of a church in Cincinnati, Ohio, a town that boasts this year's AFC North champion. We're now watching the rest of the playoffs on television. But in any case, at that Presbyterian church, every week we had what was called a preaching, or every year we had a week that is called a preaching mission week, where we brought in a minister who would proclaim the gospel, and we actually had altar calls every night during that week. And I was going to the service one evening, and I was taking Sherry, and I dropped her off in the nursery for the, for the little kids, and then I went over to the sanctuary, and I introduced the speaker, and the speaker gave a powerful message on the cross of Christ, and then called for people who wanted to give their lives to Christ to come forward and commit themselves to Jesus. And I looked up, and I saw these people coming down the aisle like they do at a Billy Graham crusade. And then to my utter horror, I see my daughter walking down the middle aisle. And I'm thinking, oh, no, this is an emotional thing. She doesn't understand what she's doing. I'm going to have to have a talk with her afterwards. I'm going to have to talk her out of this commitment. (laughs) And so on the way home, I said, honey, why did you do that? She said, Daddy, I, I didn't want to. I was embarrassed to go down there. She says, but something just compelled me to get up and go. And so I went down there, and she said, and now, Daddy, I feel clean. 
I feel like a newborn baby. I said, hmm. <laughs> I think you got it <laughs> there, honey. She did understand the simple message of the forgiveness of sins. And she was a blessed little girl to understand that her sins were forgiveness, were, were forgiven. I've told you this before, long before I studied theology. I didn't know any theology. I'd never heard the word justification in my life. But on September the 13th, 1957, in a dormitory room, 11 o'clock at night, by myself, I was on my knees confessing my sins to God. And when I got up off the ground, I arose a Christian. And the whole experience I had that night was an experience of forgiveness of sin the greatest blessedness that I had ever known, the most life-transforming event of my entire experience. So I can relate what David is saying when he said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Again, I mentioned, I mentioned it last week, I mentioned it again tonight that on Christmas Eve, I gave the little story of the children's story of the priest with 30 clothes. Why do I do it? Because it's the simplest way I know to give a graphic explanation of what happens in our justification. And it starts in Eden when Adam and Eve have their first transgression for the first time in human history, the human person experienced shame, guilt. We notice in the creation accounts that we read, and they, two of them, the man and the woman, were both naked and unashamed. That was their condition until the first transgression. As soon as they sinned, the first sin. The Bible tells us their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and they were embarrassed about it. Look around yourself tonight. There's nobody in this room that I can see who's stark, raving, naked. Look at the rest of the animals in the universe. How many of them wear shirts and dresses and coats and trousers? The only time you see an animal with a hat on is if it's a mule in New Orleans where somebody cuts out holes in the hat and sticks it on the head of the mule. Or you'll see a dog wearing a sweater in the wintertime, always made by humans. But Mother Nature doesn't make clothes for the creatures of this world, except for us. What Desmond Morris called the naked ape. We're the only ones that go about with artificial covering. Where did that start? It started in the garden with the first sin. The first experience of sin was an experience of guilt, and it manifested itself in a sense, a profound sense of shame and embarrassment. And from that moment, the human species became a fugitive, headed for cover, headed for the darkness, 
Men love the darkness rather than the light. Why? John tells us because their deeds are evil. And Adam and Eve went to the bushes to hide themselves from God. And when God came to them, He said, where are you? He said, we're hiding. Why? Well, because we're naked and we're ashamed. How do you know that you're naked? Did you eat from the tree? Well, the woman that you gave me, she made me. Oh, and the devil made me do it. And all of these things. But there are the creatures trembling before the Creator, guilty of sin, debtors who can't possibly pay their debt. And this is our universal condition, and everybody, Christian or non-Christian, knows that they carry a burden of guilt that they can't fix for themselves. And the very first act of redemption in the Bible was when God condescended to make clothes for His embarrassed creatures, and He covered their nakedness. He could have said, go ahead, stay embarrassed, stay ashamed. Instead, He covered them. Eden Gate, if you will, the original cover-up. But this is what the gospel is, is that we whose righteousness is as filthy rags receive a new set of clothes, the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus, which is given to us as a covering. Oh, this was dramatized constantly in the ritual of first in the tabernacle and then in the temple of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, when the animal was slain and his blood was carried in to the Holy of Holies, that blood was sprinkled where? On the mercy seat. The blood was a covering on the throne of God in the Holy of Holies. Habakkuk tells us that God is too righteous to even look at evil. And so unless we're covered, He will avert His glance from us. He will never make His face to shine upon us. He'll never lift up the light of His countenance upon us unless we're covered. And the only adequate covering that we will ever possess to stand in the presence of God is the covering of the righteousness of Christ. Now, what David has said in a positive fashion, he now repeats poetically in a negative way, where he said, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Let me turn that upside down for a second. The opposite expression would be this. Cursed is the man to whom the Lord 
imputes sin. Does that ring a bell? What does Paul say in his, letters to the, his letter to the Galatians of what happened on the cross? There, sin was imputed, transferred, counted, reckoned to one who was sinless, to one who was perfectly righteous. God imputed your sin and my sin to him and then cursed him. That's why Paul says that on the cross, Christ became a curse for us by imputation, by the transfer of sin from our account to his. And so he was cursed. But again, the opposite of the curse is the blessing. And the blessing is stated here, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not count their sin. That's you. That's me. And then Paul continues in this way, saying, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised as well? That is, is this blessedness of which David was speaking that comes in justification by faith alone, is this something only for Jews? Is this something that is tied to the Old Testament sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision? Do only the circumcised receive this blessedness? Well, he comes back again to Abraham. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Remember last week? I looked at the comparison and contrast between Abraham that is set forth by Paul here in chapter 4 and by James in chapter 2 of his letter, and I mentioned that both James and Paul appealed to Abraham to make the case that they were making, to prove the point they were expressing, but I said the difference was this, that Paul goes to Genesis 15, James to Genesis 22, where we have the record of Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar. But if we see back in Genesis 15, the point that Paul is making is that Abraham was justified before he offered up Isaac on the altar, and not only before he offered up Isaac on the altar, but before he was even circumcised. That it wasn't circumcision The sacrament, if you will, or the sign of the covenant wasn't the ground of Abraham's justification. It was the imputed righteousness of Christ that when Abraham believed the promise of God, God counted him righteous. So what Paul is arguing here is that Abraham was not justified by works, nor was he justified by circumcision. Because God declared him just before he was ever circumcised. Now, let me just give a little aside on this. 
one of the things that the folks here at St. Andrews struggles with more than anything else because we have people in our congregation from all different kinds of denominational backgrounds. And at every new members class, the biggest question that people struggle with is the question, how's come at St. Andrews you folks baptize babies? Babies can't respond in faith. Doesn't the New Testament say to believe and repent? And aren't the records of the New Testament people who are adults who were baptized, why do you baptize babies? And we say because baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And the sign of the covenant has always, from time immemorial, been given to the believer and to his seed. And the baptism is, is not the same as circumcision, but both circumcision and baptism are signs and seals of God's promise. But the promises are only realized by faith. That's true in the New Testament. It's true in the Old Testament. Now, Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. His son Isaac had faith after he was circumcised. Because the faith to which circumcision pointed was not tied to the time in which circumcision was rendered. Again, Abraham has faith before he's circumcised. Isaac has faith after he is circumcised. But the point is that the sign of the covenant is the sign of all the benefits that God promises His people who believe. The sacrament doesn't justify anybody. Circumcision didn't justify anybody. Baptism doesn't justify anybody. The sole instrument of justification is faith. But what is baptism? What is circumcision? They have this also in common. Not only are they both signs of the covenant, circumcision the sign of the old covenant, Baptism the sign of the new covenant, but both are signs and seals. Notice what Paul writes here. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all of those who believe. See, this is what circumcision had in common with baptism. Again, a sign and a seal. What does a sign do? If you're on your way downtown Orlando and you come to a sign that says, city limits of Orlando or welcome to Orlando, Is that sign Orlando? No. A sign points beyond itself to something. And the sign of circumcision pointed beyond itself to the promise of God, to the covenant promise that God had made with His people. This is a sign. Do you remember when God destroyed the world in the flood? And when the flood waters receded, 
And Noah and his family emerged from the ark safely. God put his bow in the sky where he promised Noah and his progeny that he would never again destroy the world by water. Talk to the people in New Orleans about that. They are not sure they believe that. But that is the promise that there'll never be another deluge that'll wipe out the world. And every time it rains and the sun shines behind the raindrops, we see the bow in the sky where God said, this is my sign. Every time you see that sign, it is to remind you of my promise. Circumcision was a sign of the promise of justification by faith alone. So is baptism. doesn't confer what it signifies. What it signifies is the promise of God to all who believe. But it's not only a sign, it's also a seal. That term sealing in the Scriptures is very important. The New Testament Greek word for to seal is sphragus. It's the seal. And it's, it's, it goes back to the idea of the signet ring of the king. If the king would issue a decree, at the end of the document he would put wax on the paper and then take his ring and press it down into the wax that became the seal that identified promise of the king. Scriptures tell us those who are in Christ are sealed by the Holy Ghost. We're not just saved, we're sealed. God has put His indelible mark upon us. And in these sacraments, in the Old Testament ritual of circumcision, the New Testament sacrament of baptism, they're not just signs, but they're seals whereby God guarantees the consequences of justification to all who believe, not to all who receive the sign. We've already gone through this, where Paul argues that not every Jew is, not everyone who's of Israel is, a, is an Israelite, but it's those who are circumcised internally, spiritually. The external sign does not guarantee salvation. It's true of baptism as well. Paul said that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father, not just of the Jews, but he's the father of the faithful. Father Abraham is the father of all who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the Father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the Jew who is circumcised, justified by faith and faith alone. And even those who are uncircumcised are justified the same way through faith alone and through the imputation of the righteousness 
of Christ. Again, we're taking our time here. As I said, understanding justification by faith alone is not hard. It's not rocket science. Anybody can grasp it with their head. But to get it in the bloodstream, because the voices all around us are telling us, no, 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 no. That's too easy. You have to earn it. You have to merit it. You have to deserve it. You have to have your own righteousness. But your righteousness accomplishes nothing. The only thing you and I can ever merit is eternal damnation. If God would give us what we earn, but God would give us what we deserve, we would perish from His wrath. But thanks be to God that He gives to us what was earned by His Son, what was merited by Christ, what was deserved by Jesus. Jesus got what He didn't deserve. We got what He did deserve, the righteousness that is by faith. How blessed is that. Let's pray. Father, indeed we are blessed, blessed beyond measure. And we look forward when we can actually see through the veil, to see you face to face, to see you as you are, that our souls may bask in the direct apprehension of your face as it shines radiantly, as you lift up the light of your countenance upon us and flood our souls with its sweetness. Amen.